Welcome to KCCast, the Annie E. Casey Foundation's podcast. I'm Lisa Hamilton, Vice President of External Affairs at the Foundation, and I'm so glad you've joined us for a hopefully inspiring and interesting conversation today. The Casey Foundation focuses on giving kids what they need, strong families, vibrant communities, and financial stability. In these efforts, the Foundation is fortunate to work with innovators who advance solutions to help kids thrive. Each month, we'll bring you an in-depth conversation with one of these experts right here on CaseyCast. Since its founding in 1948, the Casey Foundation has worked to improve the lives of children involved in the nation's foster care system. At our core, We believe that children deserve to be raised in families and that when foster care is required, that it's a beneficial experience that helps kids move in a positive direction. Therefore, I'm excited to welcome Rafael Lopez to the podcast. Rafael is the Managing Director of Accenture's Health and Public Service Practice in North America. In this role, he works with governments and nonprofits to develop innovative human services solutions. Until recently, he served as the Commissioner of the Administration on Children, Youth, and Families at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which has primary responsibility for the nation's foster care system. He also worked as a Senior Policy Advisor in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, as well as a Domestic Policy Council in the Obama White House. Raphael has dedicated his career to improving the lives of children, youth and families at all levels of government and in the nonprofit community. In fact, he previously worked in leadership development at the Casey Foundation. Welcome, Raphael. So great to be here with you, Lisa. Thank you. So let's start by talking about uh, how the foster care system works in this country. The systems are primarily administered by state and local jurisdictions. How would you describe the role that the federal government plays in child welfare? That's such a great question, Lisa. And uh, one of the the easiest ways, but most controversial ways to answer it is to um, to note how important it is to follow the money. And quite frankly, uh, in, in the modern American child welfare system, the way in which the money flows from the federal government uh, to the states, to cities and counties and tribes across our country um, is deeply tied to federal child welfare policy. And one can think about it in the context of how um, child welfare is incentivized or not. And right now, the way in which the funding flows from Washington, D.C. to every jurisdiction in the country who is winning a child welfare system, uh, it, is, it flows by the fact that a child must be uh, it removed or in the care of a child uh, welfare system before help is, is, is given, essentially. And that kind of federal incentive is not the way in which we should be thinking about child welfare moving forward in the 21st century. So the federal government has, in some cases, an outsized role in incentivizing um, what has become a very broken system in America. And we have to reimagine how we can incentivize the prevention uh, of the need to remove a child from the home and the way in which we can deeply invest in, in serving children and families and parents who are struggling with things like substance use disorders or domestic violence or mental health issues so that we can early on invest in them such that their child hopefully never has to be removed from their family. 
Mm. So it seems like the federal government has a significant financial role. What type of regulatory role do they play with state and local jurisdictions? Exactly, Lisa. Um, um, So the financial piece is one very important one, um, and it it needn't be um, ignored simply because of the way we talked about the incentives. Second are the um, regulatory. So there's entire there's legislation that just passed right at the federal level um, that tries to advance the way in which the country thinks about supports and finances child welfare systems. So there have been very important pieces of legislation over the last couple of decades um, to try to address things like the, the trafficking of children, for example, um, or the way in which um, we think about congregate gear, gear, group home facilities. Um, so there is um, both continued pending legislation that's trying to think about how we could uh, more robustly serve and deliver better results for children and families in care. Uh, that's a legislative piece. A second is a sub-regulatory influence that the federal government has uh, in everything that, um, that happens across the nation's child welfare programs. For example, things like how data is collected through the adoption and foster care analysis reporting system, uh, the way in which um, counties and states run the case management at the local level and actually are supposed to track what happens to a child if, in fact, they are removed from their family and how they receive the right kinds of services and supports ranging from education uh, to, um, to housing issues and to how many times the child welfare worker is engaging with a young person with a family. All of those pieces that I've just lifted up are sort of the tip of the spear related to uh, regulation and sub-regulatory guidance, and the people who hold the role of the of commissioner, the role I formerly held, or other roles, and who are leading and helping work with the federal career civil staff um, and providing guidance to the states and counties matter around being able to actually work in partnership to advance a much more um, uh, results-driven way to serve our kids and families. So once again, federal government has a very important role. It's not the obviously only role because uh, child welfare systems ultimately are operated on the ground in local communities uh, that are driven by local leaders. So it's this trifecta, if you will, of um, the local systems, the nonprofit and private provider organizations that are working with the local systems, and the federal government. Um, who are ultimately responsible um, as a series of partners to really ultimately serve uh, children, youth, and families in America's child welfare system. Mm. With all of these different levels of uh, decision-making and financing, do you see wide varieties in the functioning of systems on the ground? We do. Uh, In fact, um, one could make a legitimate argument that we don't have a single child welfare system in this country, and then, in fact, they are um, microsystems that are um, operated quite differently across our tribes, counties, states, and, and um, uh, across the country. Uh, there are clearly elements that are consistent across the country for the very things I mentioned a, a minute ago related to um, reporting, for example, what happens to the child who is removed from a family or if, if a family is brought to the attention of a child welfare system in a particular given city or county uh, through, for example, a hotline, um, is the case opened or not? Mm. Um, for example, of the roughly you know, over 6 million calls that come in across the country um, to um, hotlines, uh, only about half of those calls, I'm assuming half of those calls are represented by some 3.2 million children. And people oftentimes think that uh, a child who is in the child welfare system is there because of physical abuse, and that is actually not what the data has shown us over time. 
the data tells us that the vast majority of cases over and over um, uh, is ultimately for uh, what is called neglect. And neglect oftentimes is a shadow indicator for families who are struggling. Everything mm-hmm. is poverty uh, to mental health issues, domestic violence, substance use disorders. And so how we think about how we can more accurately and um, more clearly and with greater urgency and timeliness understand what is helping, what is happening with the family so that we can better assist them mm-hmm. and better support them at the local level. So we see differences of how programs are structured at the local level, how um, an individual commissioner or an individual secretary at the state level, if they make a decision that ultimately changes how a particular case is opened or the number uh, or the age of a child um, as a result, for example, of a child death in a state could dramatically change the way a system is operated at an individual state level. And that could have a national impact in terms of the numbers that we see in trends across the country as well. So mm. we're seeing a variety of local systems as well as some elements that are consistent across the country. Mm. Well, that, that's a powerful takeaway from your comments, Raphael, that uh, we have a huge opportunity to figure out how to shift our uh, nation's approach to child welfare so that it focuses more on prevention uh, than just uh, trying to assist uh, families after they have uh, had significant challenges. And also seems like uh, the federal government has uh, an opportunity as well, given the the role it has in relationship to these local jurisdictions. So you, as as you were appointed uh, commissioner uh, late in President Obama's term, uh, you had the opportunity to think about what you might want to, to do from that really special perch. How did you approach that opportunity, knowing that you had just over a year to serve in the position? Mm-hmm. I had the honor of serving um, uh, in the Obama administration first in the White House, and that allowed me the opportunity um, not only to continue working on, on issues related to children and families nationally, but better understand the way in which one can pull, um, build on, catalyze the various levers of government. And I had interestingly been um, twice nominated to serve in the role, but um, many of the president's nominees um, um, did, did not ultimately reach confirmation, those that required Senate, uh, Senate confirmation hearing. And when I finally was confirmed after a hearing, um, that process took a significant amount of time. So I didn't come into office in my former role as commissioner until August of 2015. And I had roughly about a year and a half um, right around that time to try to um, do as much good as we could for every child, youth, and family in America. And uh, one of the things, just as sort of a, a quick story, is that on my very first day in my office, one of the first things I did quietly was I printed out um, actually the number of days that we had remaining in office mm-hmm. through Inauguration Day of January 20, 2017. And it was a physical reminder that every single day mattered, every single second counted. And what we did with those seconds and those hours and those days would have an outsized impact on the way in which we would treat and serve children, youth, and families in America. And ultimately, the the sort of printout led to my whiteboard, and I would change it every single day. Hmm. So that it was a physical reminder to me personally, but also to every single person that walked in the office, that we were going to act with urgency, not simply because... I or we came into the role late in the administration, but because of that is the kind of action uh, and respect that the children, youth, and families and child welfare system deserve. Mm. Because the, what is happening to them at the moment has sometimes a life and death impact and consequences for their future and their livelihoods. 
So there were, there were tools that we used around information memorandums, providing guidance to the states around the way we thought, for example, around the courts. We were working through the last day in the administration, releasing guidance to the state and to the country around things like the importance of high-quality legal representation and why that matters in every single child welfare case and could have a, an impact. And there's a burgeoning body of research that notes that when, when one has high-quality legal representation, outcomes for families oftentimes are better. Mm. Or the way in which we were thinking about um, the intersectionality of homelessness and foster care. Why is it that a young person who is in foster care should have to age out of foster care, not have ties to a family or to a, a network of people who love and support them and end up homeless in our streets? How we integrate those systems. So we tried to use every single lever every day um, to try to advance child welfare, to advance our thinking in this country, uh, and to provide examples and models of how best to do that. Hmm. Did you have a particular set of priorities that you and your team worked on? We did. Um, and one of them, again, was deeply tied to the question around timing. So we knew we wanted to, um, for example, uh, make sure that we used time to deeply look at issues related to the Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Indian Child Welfare Act um, was, um, became, came into law in the Nixon administration. And, and in 38 years since the law has passed, the way in which we were thinking about um, child welfare specifically related to, um, to Native American children um, needed, if, if one could argue, a refresh. And we deeply um, integrated um, issues of the Indian Child Welfare Act into all that we did, including um, some of the rules um, that we left as a legacy of the administration. Uh, a couple of them were trying to modernize uh, the approach to child welfare as basic as the way in which data is collected on, at, at the micro level on children, youth, and families so that we could better understand trends, for example, things that are happening so that we know the stories behind what happens to a child when they are in the child welfare system. Mm -hmm. So updating and modernizing AFGARS, which is the way in which the nation reports and understands the data that everyone talks about and quotes in newspapers. Mm -hmm. So the adoption, foster care, and analysis reporting system rule, which governs um, how data is collected and, and, and rolled up from the local to the federal level, that had not been changed since 1993. Mm. Similarly, um, the way in which case management information was collected on basic things like um, uh, you know, uh, number of siblings, if the child is connected education, um, whether or not um, the kid has had sibling visits, all these things that matter about the individual case of the child and what is happening to them in the child welfare system, that had not been changed since 1993. Those are but two of the examples of ways in which we left um, a set of, of, of rules that are not only going to guide the policy uh, and the way in which data is collected and reported, but hopefully influence moving forward how we think about more robustly a very different system for child welfare in America. Um, we wanted to integrate technology and innovation into everything we did because, as I've just noted, things hadn't been changed in some of these areas you know, for over 23 years when, they, when, we, when we finally finished them. And there had, we built, of course, and stood on the progress of countless predecessors of variety of administrations, but it was important to get it done at this moment in time in history because the particular president that we were serving, President Obama, modeled the kind of leadership around the way in which we should use all of the tools of the 21st century to better serve um, all, uh, all of the people in the country. And so we had an extraordinary leader who modeled um, the way in which we should approach uh, our work, 
Um, it was important to integrate innovation and technology and science in everything that we did to better understand uh, and how to drive better results for kids. And we used all of that in everything we did up to the last day of the administration. Mm. So I, I noted in your intro that you were a senior policy advisor in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. What from that experience did you bring into the work you were doing to advance the use of technology by child welfare systems? And it might help our listeners to understand something about the kinds of technology local jurisdictions use to gather the data you were talking about. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's actually, um, I, I had a, I don't know what, what the right word might be, but just, other than the, the extraordinary honor, but I had just the privilege of being surrounded by an extraordinary set of colleagues. Um, and I was a bridge between uh, two different White House offices. One was the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the other was the Domestic Policy Council. And, this, and the work that I did uh, and the bridge that was built between them was around children, youth, and families. So on everything from how we um, ultimately launched the first ever White House Foster Care and Technology Hackathon to show that the advances that have happened in other sectors across the country and the tools of the 21st century technology that are applied on everything from ordering books on Amazon Prime and having them delivered to your home today to the way in which one orders pizza and one can see who is actually putting the toppings on your pizza and who's mm -hmm. delivering it. Why is it? that we are not more urgently and more robustly taking those tools and applying them in ways that matter in child welfare. Why is it, for example, that our nation's AFGARS reporting system, which is, again, the data, um, once it's collected, has to essentially trickle up into what become federal numbers. That happens almost a year after that data is collected, mm -hmm. and we are working off of essentially old data right when the press release comes out. These kinds of trends don't make sense in an environment in a world that is fastly changing, uh, is volatile, and is constantly evolving. And so how do we actually use all of the levers that we have uh, to bring to bear for ch uh, not only child welfare, but human services writ large? Why is it, and there are clearly ethical concerns here, that if a child is in foster care, that we aren't able to use basic um, data systems to have a live read on what is happening. Let's say if a kid has to move from one part of town to another in a multiple um, foster care home placement, or if they have to go to a different school, why is it that alarms can't be triggered automatically and virtually, such that the way in which caseworkers engage with an, an individual child's case has ch changes? And what I know for a fact and I saw over and over, and I know countless people who will listen to this podcast will understand who do this work in the field, it is a deeply paper-driven system. Mm -hmm. It is one that is still using pencil, pen, and paper, um, and maybe Excel spreadsheets from time to time mm -hmm. to ultimately collect information. And that is no way to run a child welfare system. So if I learned anything in those roles around technology and policy and bridging the world with children and family, it was how do we understand and better connect what is happening in so many sectors across the world and apply that insight and that learning with urgency um, to child welfare, not just because it's the new thing to do, because it's, because it, but because it's the way in which we should better serve our children and families. Great. So technology is... Uh, absolutely one of the things you'd recommend uh, the country focus on. But uh, what other pressing challenges do you think there are for our nation's foster care system? And maybe what yeah. some of the possible solutions are? 
Yes, yes. Well, I think one of the most significant ones is something that we worked on um, in the administration, and it's still an ongoing, um, if you will, political conversation, which is actually the way in which uh, the nation's child welfare system is funded. And um, there was a piece of legislation known as the Family First Prevention Services Act of 2016 that would have, fir- that would have for the first time in the nation's history, um, turned around the financial incentives, if you will, and the way in which money would have flowed from the federal government to local jurisdictions. And at its core, while imperfect, uh, I have yet to see, read, or understand uh, a perfect piece of legislation. But this piece of legislation, which had broad bipartisan support, would have allowed for the reimbursement to states, counties, and tribes for deep investment in prevention services, for some of the very things that we know to be causes for what happens to a family when they struggle and the causes for removal. Mm-hmm. Chief among them, things like domestic violence, mm-hmm. substance use disorders, mental health services. And it would have allowed for things like if a mom was struggling uh, with substance use disorders, and maybe it came from op- the use of opioids at first, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it led to um, other uses of drugs. But in fact, you know, people often uh, just simply assume that if someone is struggling, that they are incapable of loving their child. And I have met, I have sat at a table um, uh, with extraordinary parents who struggled, finally got clean and sober because they reached out for help. They were able to to, um, receive that kind of treatment and in partnership sometimes with child welfare agencies were able to keep their children. Mm-hmm. And now they are they have full-time jobs, they're working hard to provide for their families, and it's the belief that that mom or that dad has in them uh, the extraordinary power to be amazing parents. And at the federal level, when I think about your question, I think here's an example of what could have happened had we actually ultimately had the Congress and the Senate ultimately approved uh, some version of the Family First Prevention Services Act, and it could have been signed into law by President Obama. Mm. For the first time in United States history, we would have changed the way in which money flowed and the way in we incentivized policy and the way in which we incentivized um, support for families. So I think that we have to keep our eyes on the prize as a country on that, which is when we look at things like the growing opioid epidemic, when we look at things like um, uh, challenge at the, num- the, in- the continued increased numbers and the rise of kids who are entering foster care yet again, we don't want to go back decades um, to see the kinds of spikes that have once been seen. We need to do far more, far quicker around the way in which we deeply invest in prevention. And I think that's the next era for American child welfare. Wonderful. Thank you. So May is National Foster Care Month. It's a time to honor those who are working to help kids and families and to raise awareness about the needs of kids in uh, care. If you could share one insight into the foster care experience with those who might be unfamiliar with it, what would it be? I'm sure you had an opportunity to meet so many families uh, who's, mm-hmm. who, who've been touched by, uh, by the foster care system. Could you share an, an example? Sure. Um, I think if I had to choose one of the things that um, most profoundly impacted me and changed uh, me personally, it was meeting um, children and families across the country. I I traveled the country in the role because obviously it is a national role. And I I went from, you know, very rural uh, parts of our country. Um, I visited a significant amount of um, 
of, of tribes in our country from big cities, north, south, east, west. I just had this extraordinary privilege to meet, interact, and spend time with uh, children and families in America's child welfare system. Um, and, uh, and over and over and over again, the thing that I would walk away with, no matter how much, how many minutes I would spend with someone, it might be a very quick interaction or it might literally be sitting at a table for a couple of hours. And it was this notion that the children, youth, and family um, who are in uh, these systems, whether the child welfare or homelessness or um, any number of these other programs, that they're extraordinary, mm. that, they are, that they are beautiful, that they are powerful in and of themselves, mm. and that they aren't simply broken, uh, but the systems that serve them are broken. Mm. When you look at a child, or a, whether it's a 7-year-old child or an 11-year-old child or a 9-year-old child or a 17-year-old, and, and I, I can't, to this moment, I can't close my eyes and not have one of their faces pop into my memory because so many people discounted them. And the insight here is that what happens if we looked at that child and that family from a place of deep and profound love? And we said, I see in you, Lisa, 17 years old, who's struggling and might look like she acts out because she has behavioral problems, but behind Lisa's um, shy demeanor is a young woman who is deeply sad because she has been in 17 foster care homes Mm -hmm. and has each time had to make new friends at high schools. And what Lisa wants most is to be... um, the, you know, the XYZ of a particular industry, and how do we support Lisa to achieve her dream? That's the way that we should look at young people and the families in this system, hmm. and to figure out how do we better serve them. And that insight is something that I, um, I'm deeply grateful for, because um, while people struggle, um, and for a variety of reasons, rather than to stand in judgment and blame, we should stand in a position of how can we help so that they can thrive and reach their potential in life. You know, one of the things we often talk about is engaging families who are affected by the issues we're working on in figuring Mm -hmm. out the solutions. And so I'm even Mm -hmm. wondering in the many uh, interactions you had with these families, were there things that they recommended that systems Mm -hmm. do that we could all learn from? Absolutely. I think there are a couple things I took away, um, which, which... aren't going to be surprising because they sound so basic, but they're not um, typical elements of, if you will, uh, the child welfare system. And one of them is the uh, basic thing called transparency. Over and over you hear from um, young people in the system and parents, I don't know or I didn't know what was happening to me. Mm. Um, I didn't get told why I was moving from place A to place B, or I was picked up from my high school and didn't go back to my home. So no one explained to me what had happened. So transparency sounds so basic, but is fundamental to the way in which we should drive all of our systems. And that's not transparency in terms of, let me explain to you, Lisa, why we're going to move you to a, a school X or home A. But in fact, to, to imagine that at whatever age a young person is, um, that you can developmentally, uh, in an appropriate developmental way, explain some version of what is happening, right? Mm-hmm. And you're not going to explain to a three-year-old the same way you might explain to a 17-year-old. It's not going to happen. But transparency matters immensely. Second, um, urgency. I heard that over and over, which is why is it that I, the young person, or I, the mom or dad, waited so long to get clarity or movement on an issue? Mm. 
Um, so the way in which families are served to be served with a greater sense of urgency and movement. Third, um, the ability to actually read what was happening in their cases. The number of people I met across the country that said, if I could just understand where things were headed, or like why it was that I was going to court for this particular date, or why it was that I was going before this particular county worker, um, if they could understand that, it would, it would make an enormous difference. And so I think those are just a couple of the, the kinds of things that I heard. But I think the other thing is when you think about, um, for example, the concept of human-centered design, that the way in which one serves people, whether it's in um, a hotel or in a restaurant or in a particular industry, people expect a level of customer service that at its core respects that client or that customer. Mm. And how we design our systems moving forward so that the, the child or the family is the center of that system, right, is, is, is all about the future. And how we use human-centered design to make sure that people better understand how they are a piece of that system and how they can navigate with a kind of intuition and with an ease and efficiency that we have not quite seen yet in America's child welfare system. Mm. Thank you. Those, those are extraordinary uh, recommendations. Um, uh, finally, I think I'll, I'll ask, you know, we have seen over the last uh, several years that more children are entering foster care. What do you attribute this increase to? You know, it's um, quite fascinating. There are a variety of takes on why these numbers have changed. So I'll give you a couple of examples um, and then uh, that, that, are, are, that are driven by insights in the data itself and trends and um, what is widely available regarding to um, AFCARS, which is, again, the Adoption Foster Care Analysis Reporting System, which is how we as a nation take a look at uh, trends in foster care across the country. So one of them is um, there is, there is and I, there are, there's thinking out there that the rise in opioid use um, is, is putting more families at risk. Um, and there are a variety of thoughts about direct uh, causation. Uh, but I happen to believe that because the way in which the data is reported is, is not uh, real time, especially upwards from the local governments to the federal government, that we see trends um, uh, too late, mm. which is that if we had um, a, data, a, a sort of advanced analytics to better understand at the local and the federal level, we can actually more robustly target our services. Uh, and that would make an enormous difference in, in the use of analytics in a way that has never been used before in child welfare in this country. So one of the reasons um, that that we are seeing a spike, if you will, um, is the is the rise in opioid use. And there are, while some would argue that there isn't a direct causation in some parts of the country, there is. And I have met child welfare leaders at the state and county and tribal level that could anecdotally tell you that multiple generations in a household sometimes are struggling with, with opioid use. Mm. So that is one of the factors. Mm. Um, a second factor is oftentimes what we're seeing related to um, differential response and um, what is happening with particular systems in terms of how they're serving and supporting at-risk families uh, rather than bringing children into care. That is another one of the thoughts out there in the country. Uh, and that may be one of the reasons why more children are coming into care rather than um, during their initial um, CPS review. 
A third component um, is also the way in which the courts are engaging older youth in the system um, and not placing them in juvenile justice facilities, but actually placing them in child welfare facilities. Mm -hmm. And this particular last piece is really important because oftentimes people misunderstand that um, particularly older youth are in child welfare because they have misbehaved. Mm -hmm. And that is simply not the case. I have yet to meet a young person in the country who says, yes, please, sign me up for disruption in my life and move me around multiple times. Mm -hmm. But the way in which the courts are working more closely with the child welfare system matters. And it's also putting pressure on the child welfare system. That's another Mm -hmm. reason. We also know, for example, that sometimes... um, Sadly, a death in a particular jurisdiction, at the county, tribal, or mm-hmm. state level, can have an outsized influence on immediate changes in policy that bring more kids into care because they are being more cautious. Mm-hmm. So these, these um, four issues I've lifted up combined, if you will, are some of the reasons why we are seeing an increase in, um, in the number of kids coming to care. And, and connected to an earlier question about sort of the future of the, of the child welfare system in America, I would argue yet again that we have to be much more diligent about the way in we use, which we use technology innovation to drive the data from a stagnant piece of paper on a dashboard or a PDF to driving in real time how we are allocating resources, how we are deploying our staff so that more people can do the work of human services and social work and ultimately better understand in real time why it is that kids are going into care versus having to wait a year and a half after you get the AFCARS data at the federal level to begin to build insights. Mm. Those insights should be uh, building over time, uh, driven by real-time data and driven by real-time analytics in a way that, again, we have not yet seen in child welfare. Mm. So as uh, as we celebrate uh, Foster Care Month, I Uh, know that foster parents are uh, perhaps the most important intervention that child welfare systems use to help uh, stabilize Mm -hmm. children's lives. Uh, Could you say something about uh, the uh, types of foster parents you met in your journey and the uh, important role they play for children? Absolutely. Um, I, I think the first thing we need to all say to foster parents is thank you. Thank you for stepping up. Thank you for, um, Uh, loving and caring our children. Uh, I think that, you know, um, people come into foster care as parents in a variety of ways. Um, And ultimately, not only do they provide an outsized role in shaping what's happening to a young person in their life, but also, um, uh, if you will, they're helping us all better understand how we can provide, open up our hearts and our homes to kids who sometimes um, need it the most. And um, I think to myself, uh, of the many foster parents I met across the country, the uh, importance of um, how we share what we know, what we learn, by also by word of mouth, um, that there are so many ways in which we can give um, to our, our community and our country, uh, and there are so many opportunities to help kids in foster care, and one of them is by being a foster parent um, and, um, and learning that, in fact, there is... Um, that it's not as hard as people have sometimes made it seem because parenting um, is the hardest thing to do when there isn't a manual. Um, I'm a father of two boys, and it is the most beautiful and the hardest job I have. Uh, And that is no different for foster parents. Mm -hmm. So this notion that 
Um, one can't foster parents because I don't know exactly how I'm going to serve a kid who's struggling. Well, guess what? We are all learning that together as humans, as Americans, as citizens of the world. And so when I met foster parents across the country, it was simply sometimes thanking them and supporting them and, and talking them through the reality that we all struggle on how to be parents. In fact, uh, the Children's Bureau launched this, um, uh, this ad campaign uh, that um, was talking about you don't have to be a perfect parent. And uh, the fact is, is that none of us are perfect parents, but we all have the ability and the capacity to love more deeply. And so as we celebrate uh, this month uh, in May and highlight the importance of foster care, we also must support and lift up the parents and the, and, and the networks that are supporting all of the children who are ultimately in foster care. Uh, and it's also important to lift up um, kin care. Uh, one of the things when we think about the data on, um, on children and, and the results that they achieve or not when they are in care uh, ties to their placements and ultimately achieving permanency. And we know that from the data over time that children who are placed in, um, in homes um, uh, with, with kin um, oftentimes do better. And some of this isn't... Uh, 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 rocket science. It's simply the idea that sometimes kids know that it's an auntie or it's, it's my neighbor, Lisa, who, who's watched me grow up and, and she's going to help be my foster parent. There's a variety of ways we need to think about foster parenting in this country and also use technology innovation to better match kids with foster parents. There are so many ways that we could catalyze and expedite the matching of children who are waiting to be adopted. And in this country, for example, not just in the fostering, there's you know, over 100,000 kids um, who are waiting to be adopted. Mm. Sometimes fostering is that pathway, uh, and it's a foster-to-adoption pathway. So I think that um, there are lots of ways we can think about this uh, during this month as we celebrate all of the ways that we can better support kids and families. And ultimately, it all comes down to saying thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for loving our kids. And thank you for stepping up to help them. Well, Raphael, I think you have given us a powerful vision for what the future can look like for the nation's foster care system, thinking about ways we can focus more on prevention that keep families together, how we can better utilize technology to make better decisions and more timely decisions uh, mm -hmm. for the youth in our care, um, respecting those families who are involved in the system and providing them with, with the transparency and information uh, they need in order to uh, uh, be better served uh, within these systems. And, and finally, um, your call for all of us to uh, respect and, and support and show appreciation for the fostering kin parents who are uh, helping children uh, in really important times of need. Thank you so much for your service to this country. Thank you for um, giving us a call to action for the future. And thank you uh, so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been lovely to be with you, Lisa. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. So thank you for joining us today, Raphael, and I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can also ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter using the KCCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and find notes for today's show, visit us online at aecf.org forward slash podcast. And follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.